As I go to 1 Timothy, I want to invite you to pray with me again. Father, as Paul was so thankful that the Thessalonians received the words that he preached as the words of God, I ask that your words from Scripture would speak directly to our hearts today, that we would receive your word, and that I would say nothing that would hinder your word working in us and among us, and that it would work in great power for our good and for our great joy. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I wanted that passage read from 1 Thessalonians because Paul uses two images that I think are really precious that help us understand the way that he preached. Sometimes people have an image of the Apostle Paul that he was kind of a jerk, to be honest. Um, He could very boldly and strongly be confrontational. He's not afraid to confront and contradict someone like the Apostle Peter. And yet at the same time, Scripture describes these sweet moments where he says, I was like a nursing mother among you, tender and gentle. And he says, I was like a father and you were like my own children as he declared the word of God to them. And so the image of Paul as some sort of callous, hard-hearted jerk is not accurate based on what the scriptures describe. And it's not accurate based on how the churches that received his ministry benefited from his preaching. And so as we go to 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy at the beginning of today's text to urge or to even plead or to beg with the congregation as he presents the truth of God's word to them. And it's with the attitudes and actions that Paul had, that I think we have to bear that command in mind. So if you could keep an image of a mother loving her children or of a father caring for his children, bear that in mind as we go to this text where Paul continues to teach young Timothy how he is to minister as a faithful young pastor. And I've got a couple of things this morning. I've got four points for you. And I want to uh, entitle this message, Good Teaching, Godliness, and Happiness. Good Teaching, Godliness, and Happiness. And I believe those things go together so that when you receive good teachingly, good teachingly, when you receive good teaching and you believe the word of God, and you put it into practice, it causes you to be both godly and happy. It leads to a rich contentment so that whatever God calls you to live through, whether it's great times of national and global uncertainty or times of personal tragedy, as you accept the teaching of God, you can have real hope and even joy, and even happiness. And as I argue for that truth this morning, that good teaching leads to godliness and happiness, I'm going to give you four points this morning. First is the kind command of good teaching. The kind command of good teaching. Second is the character of bad teachers. 
the character of bad teachers. Third, the contentment of godliness, the contentment of godliness. And fourth, the calamity of godlessness. Fourth, the calamity of godlessness. And to begin with, I want to point you to the second half of verse 2 in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and talk for a moment about the kind command of good teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in the second half of verse 2, Paul, as he has through this letter a few times, tells Timothy that he is to command and teach the things that he has heard Paul say. Excuse me, it's the second half of verse 3. I was like, where did that verse go? Um, Teach and urge these things. Teach and urge these things. Teaching, I think we can appreciate as the giving of information, making sure that you carefully and accurately communicate something, whether you're a math teacher or a science teacher or an English teacher, or in this case, a teacher of God's word, a good teacher helps you remember the content of God's word. But it's not just memorization. It's not just assimilation of information. Paul doesn't say, make sure that the members of your congregation can pass a test. He actually says, teach and urge these things. And I want to talk for just a moment about the word that he uses for urge here. In other places, it can be used of begging, of exhorting, of requesting, of encouraging. It's a word that means to come alongside the person that you are talking to and you long for them to do something. You are emotionally invested. And it's used all throughout the New Testament. I want to give you a handful of examples of how this word is used so that you get a sense of how Timothy is to teach. Because it's not just giving the church information so that the members can then go decide what they think is true and accurate. But instead, it's an emotional pleading for our lives to conform to the word of God. So first, in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, you can turn there if you want to. I've got a number of references, so we're going to be moving a little bit quickly here. But in Matthew chapter 8, there's a centurion who, who has a servant that he loves dearly, as if he were a member of his own family. And this servant is sick, and the centurion comes to Christ And the text says he begged Jesus to heal his servant. It's the exact same word. Parakaleo means that he came and called on Jesus to meet a need that he could not meet. He loved this man and wanted to see him made well. And so he comes to Christ and asks him to heal his servant. A little later on in Matthew chapter 8. In fact, the word is used five times in Matthew chapter 8. We're only going to look at two of them. But Jesus heals this man who had been possessed and tormented by demons for years. Scripture says that he lived in a graveyard and people had tried to chain him and he could not be contained. He had supernatural strength so that he broke chains and he continued to harm himself and was a danger to others. And Christ 
cast out this man's demons, restored him to health. And as he left, the healed and restored man begged Jesus, said, Lord Jesus, I want to go with you. And in fact, ironically, People throughout that chapter had been begging Jesus to do certain things. The only person he says no to is this man who has been healed and restored. And Jesus says, no, you've got a mission. I want you to tell this whole town what I have done for you. But you get a sense that this man who is healed and restored loves Christ because of what Christ has done for him. And so he begs Christ. He is emotionally invested. He is calling on Christ to allow him to come. Not only that, in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, there's a leper imploring Jesus to be made clean, begging Jesus to make him clean. Now, leprosy still exists today, but we don't see it very often in America. It's, it's not the horror that we're afraid of. If, if you guys remember what the AIDS crisis was like in the 80s, before people had any idea how it was transmitted, they understood there was no cure, and there was real fear around AIDS as a virus. You can imagine that this man has a similar fatal illness that is contagious and there's no cure for. And so when he comes to Christ, he is asking for physical healing so that he can go back and be part of his family, so that he can go back and live in the house where he grew up. Not only has his disease caused him to have a terminal diagnosis, It has caused him to be cast out of the entire community so that other people were not made unclean along with him. And so this man has hope that Jesus will heal him. And he comes to him. The same word that Paul uses as he tells Timothy how he's to teach, same word, this leper comes to Christ and begs him for healing. Not only that, in Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5. You see, one of my favorite stories in all the Gospels. This man has a daughter who is at death's door. And he wants his little girl to live. And so this man comes and uses the same word, parakaleo. He uses the same word. He comes alongside Christ and he begs him. He pleads for him to come and make his daughter well. To heal her. And in so many of these places, we could go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 29. I'll give you another one. Matthew 18, 29. You find a man pleading for his debt to be forgiven. Now today, if you have a debt, there are different ways that you can deal with it. Sometimes the people you owe money to will forgive a portion of your debt. They'll put you on a payment plan. Sometimes you declare bankruptcy and end up owing nothing for your debt. But none of that existed in this time. And this time, if you had a debt that you could not pay, you'd be thrown in jail. Your children would have no means of living. They may go off and be sold into slavery. You had no hope if you could not pay your debt. And so this man with urgency is begging for his debts to be forgiven. Sometimes the word has a sense of commanding. Maybe a little bit like, a fire alarm. Okay, so the, like a fire alarm communicates something, right? 
If I pull a fire alarm and you hear the bells go off and you hear that loud, obnoxious ringing in your ears, you don't sit there and think, all right, so if I'm given a test, true or false, there is a fire. I'm going to check true. Got it. That's not what a fire alarm does. A fire alarm motivates you to move. It gives you a sort of obnoxious urgency that something must be done. I will grab a fire extinguisher and try to put it out. I will encourage people to run out of the building. It will motivate me to action. Yes, on one level, it's giving you some information, but it's giving you the information in such a way that it's urgent and it moves you to action. So I'll give you an example of that. In Acts chapter 11, in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas, one of the kind and gracious people, his name means son of encouragement. He's someone that stands by the apostle Paul before anybody trusts him. Everybody knows Paul has this reputation of being a persecutor of the church, that he throws men and women in jail, and he is feared for his reputation. And Barnabas is one of the first people that comes alongside and says, you know what, brother? I believe the Lord has changed you. I believe the Lord has saved you. And I understand why other people are afraid, but I'm going to love you anyway. And I'm going to trust you. And if it's in the Lord's wisdom that I get hurt in this, so be it. But I'm going to be faithful to love you. And he stands by Paul and he encourages him and he strengthens him. Barnabas exhorts the church. And the word exhort is the same word, parakaleo. He comes alongside with emotional urgency and urges the church towards obedience. Some of you may be familiar with, with Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's a, it's a verse that gets preached a lot. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to make your lives a living sacrifice. The word for urge right there, same word, parakaleo. It means, I beg you. And he says that based on the first 11 chapters of Romans. He's just finished praising God for his infinite wisdom and how God loved us while we were yet sinners and Christ died for us. No one else would have planned salvation and redemption the way that God did. And Paul, in great humility and awe at what God has done through the cross of Christ and through the resurrection worships God at the end of chapter 11 saying, oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his ways. And because God is so wise and because God is so great, Romans 12, 1, therefore, because of who God is and what he has done, I urge you, your action is motivated because of God's goodness and wisdom. The more clearly you see who God is, the more urgent you feel the need to fall on your knees and worship him, not just for an hour on Sunday, but with your life, making your life a living sacrifice. See, it's not just about being able to say what the gospel is. It's about the gospel transforming your life. The word of God is not just information. The word of God must lead to transformation. And there's an emotional urgency in the message that says, believe, obey, 
do these things. Paul says in another place, I I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. He says that to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians. You get the sense, even as the church in Corinth has struggled to obey the teaching that Paul has, that he loves them deeply. He writes with tears. He doesn't want to hurt them. He wants to assure them of his love for them. In another place, he says, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so Paul, in his own example, whether it's to the Thessalonians, describing himself as a mother, tenderly caring for her children, or as a father, loving the children of the church, or whether he's writing to the church at Corinth, saying how he wrote them with affliction and anguish and many tears, Paul is demonstrating the emotional urgency of a faithful pastor as he presents and preaches the word of God. And in Timothy, he uses the same word several times. So I'll give you one example before we go back here. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. 1 Timothy 2.1 Prayer is an urgent need in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. This is a word that carries some authority with it, but it's an affectionate, loving authority that longs for the good of the person the request is made of. And so when Paul turns to Timothy, nearing the end of this letter, where he said some things that were difficult, and he said some things that are difficult for us, he says to Timothy, teach and urge these things. Be faithful in saying all of them, even if the people of your church don't want to hear them. Urge them. Don't just present it, drop the mic, and leave as if it doesn't matter what people do afterwards. Plead, reason, love. Teach and urge these things. I believe that as we hear the word of God, ultimately, we will one day stand before God and give account for what we've heard. But faithful ministry means that we don't just ignore where we are as a body, but that we lovingly long to move towards unity as we examine what this book has taught us. And so as Paul has instructed Timothy to teach and to urge these things or to beg for these things to be done obediently, I believe it's because he believes The church is blessed by faithful teaching. So friends, I think this is true for us today. And I'll give you one example. When I preached the book of Ezra last year, I pointed out that God's people under Ezra's leadership had moved back to Jerusalem. 
and that Ezra leads the people in putting God's law in practice 1,000 years after God gave the law to Moses. They have been living in a different culture with a different language, and when they move back to Jerusalem, there are people from other cultures and languages living in the land. Much has changed. And so you could think that they might wonder how much of the law will apply to us now. It's been a thousand years since God gave it to Moses. Maybe in a different cultural context, things will have changed. And as you read through the book of Ezra, you find that again and again and again, the people of God are blessed when they faithfully obey the law and they understand that in spite of a different culture and a different language and different people, that the word of God applies to them directly. And Ezra teaches the law and blesses the people of God. Friends, I believe that that message is for our church so that whether it's Ezra or 1 Timothy, the path to blessing for our church is to follow the pattern that God lays down in this book. That everything is for us and for our good, even if it seems out of sync culturally. And my obligation is not only to give you information, but to urge you to obey what the word of God says. And Paul warns that when those who come along and dismiss God's word, however they do it, that it is, it is bad character that will ultimately harm the church when it dismisses the word of God. So I've taken a moment and talked about the kind command of good teaching. I believe we should understand good teaching is teaching that is inclusive of all of God's word. It doesn't only look for verses that are popular or easy to hear, but instead tries to understand all that God has said to us. And I've talked for a moment about why I believe this is kind, that ultimately it leads to God's blessing as it did in, in Ezra's day. Paul then warns that if you neglect teaching and urging these things, that there will be harm and that there are character flaws that lead someone to neglecting or changing the teaching of God's word. And so I want to talk for a moment about the character of bad teachers. And friends, I want to say that I believe everyone who handles the word of God has these temptations. I don't preach this to pick on anyone. I preach this to say, this is a danger for anyone who handles the word of God. And we need to take these truths as the kind warnings that God intends for them to be. So in verse Three, Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In my Bible, I I often write in the margins, 
prayer requests, things that I need. And, and by verse four, I wrote, I need humility. I need humility. When we approach the word of God with an idea that we already understand what is true and what is right, and so we come upon something that makes us uncomfortable, if we are humble, we will submit to the word of God. But if we are conceited, we will try to bend the word of God to make it submit to us. Paul warns that those who teach different doctrines who do not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness are ultimately conceited. And I want to look for just a moment at verse 3 and talk a little bit about the doctrines that he might be talking about. Before I do that, I want to point out the relationship between doctrine, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and godliness. Because good, faithful teaching leads to a particular type of person. Good and faithful teaching leads to a particular type of person. I think we all know people who are very smart, but are not necessarily very good at different parts of life. In fact, uh, Dave, you sent me a video this past week uh, that was about stupid people. Um, Thankfully, it wasn't naming names, Um, but it was describing people that are harmful to themselves and others. And the behavioral patterns of those types of people in contrast with some other types of people. And what I want to suggest here, I'm not going to call anybody stupid, but the thing that leads someone to godliness is not intelligence. One of the things that they mentioned in that little video is that there are people who harm themselves and others in every type of walk of life. They may be very intelligent in one way, and yet they can cause great harm to themselves and others in spite of their intellectual intelligence. And the same is true of Christian teaching. You may know your Bible well. You may even know Greek and Hebrew. You may know a lot of history but if it doesn't lead you to godliness in your personal life, it is of no value. And so Paul connects good teaching, ultimately the end of verse 3, with godliness, a transformed life. And he is telling Timothy that he is the representative of Jesus Christ. The people in Ephesus never saw Jesus face to face. Okay, so you can imagine Timothy faithfully preaching and teaching, and someone at Ephesus could never say to him, you know, I didn't hear that from Jesus, because they didn't know Jesus. Timothy is Jesus' representative to the church in Ephesus. Now, Timothy, I'm sure, had a lot of private opinions that he would say, you know, this has nothing to do with what Jesus is teaching the church. Maybe, for example, he liked chicken more than he liked beef. I don't know. It's a goofy, arbitrary illustration that his private opinions about all kinds of things in life would have no bearing on his authority as a pastor and as a representative of Christ. But when he is handling the word of God and he is faithfully communicating the words of Jesus to the church, the church is bound not by Timothy's authority, but by the words of Christ. And when Timothy is urging and teaching the content of this book, 
the church was to understand that Timothy was representing Jesus with the authority of Jesus, not because Timothy was anything, but because Jesus is the Savior who died for the church and who is washing her with the water of the word so that she is ready to see him face to face. Friends, this is why we preach the word of God, because we believe that our Savior Jesus is still preparing us to meet him face to face. And the safest and the best course of action is to follow this book carefully, with humility, submitting to all of its teaching. To come alongside and to criticize the inspired word of God takes great arrogance that is ultimately destructive. Now in Timothy's church, there there are some things that we know. If you read the beginning of chapter 4, you know that there were people who were teaching in Timothy's church that really holy, godly people didn't marry or eat certain foods. You can look at the letters to the Corinthians, and you can know that there were certain people that were teaching the resurrection had already happened so that there was no hope for the dying or the dead. So as people lost loved ones... So I'm so sorry, you know, you've already missed it. The resurrection already took place. God doesn't value our physical bodies. And so they were moving people to a place of despair and hopelessness. Also in Corinth, there were people teaching that the grace of Jesus meant that you could be open and affirming of any type of romantic relationship. And the church was celebrating a relationship between a man and his father's wife. And Paul says, you you can't do that. In Thessalonica, two letters to the church in Thessalonica, some people were teaching that the day of the Lord had already come. And in the context of, of Paul's teaching to the church, this caused great distress because they thought that meant that there would be no one to rescue them in their suffering. The day of the Lord is the day when Jesus shows up and makes all wrongs right who rescues those who are persecuted. And they were hearing, what, the day of the Lord already came? What does this even mean? And Paul writes them to say, no, that's wrong. The truth is the day of the Lord is in the future. And you have a future hope that Jesus will rescue you. And he will use your current suffering for your good. Galatians. False teachers were coming in and saying, you need to keep the law of Moses in order to become a Christian. So so you want to be saved? You want to be part of the church? All right, here are all the rules that go along with that. And they were making it impossible to become a Christian. And friends, you can look through the Old Testament, excuse me, look through the New Testament and find all the errors that were creeping into the church. And on one level, that feels very, very safe. Because... We don't deal with most of those errors. So if I talk about the errors that creep into the American church, then it becomes a lot more uncomfortable because the question is, what do we believe about these things? Are our convictions informed by the word of God? And does Paul's command to teach and urge biblical truth apply to us when the lies of our culture creep in? And I'm going to give you two that I believe are persistent and constantly creeping in to the church all throughout the Western world. One that you hear just constantly. If people believe God exists at all, they will say, well, God is love, so he would never, never send someone to hell. 
And friends, the Bible is so clear that the patience of God will one day have an end. And the urgency of this message is, if you hear the good news that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, repent today. Do not put it off. Because you don't know when God's patience will end. You don't know when Christ will come back. You don't know when your life will end. Be ready to meet the Lord Jesus by repenting and believing that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. And many people will say, you know, if you want to believe that, that's fine. But that's not for everybody. And the word of God comes along and says, there is one way to the Father and it's through Jesus Christ. If you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you are in danger, not according to my word, but according to the word of God. And so I preach a message that says, it is urgent for you to repent and believe. And I'm not just trying to help you understand what the Bible says so that you can be a smarter person and understand English literature or something goofy like that. I am urging you that you need to do this. That you need to ask the Lord to forgive your sins. Because if you die in your sins, you will be separated from a holy God forever. And you cannot imagine the misery of the darkness that separates you from the love of God. Friends, that's one popular lie that creeps in again and again. And it's a tempting lie. Because people that we know and love have walked away from Christ. And so we want to believe that perhaps God in his mercy will make an exception. Or somehow that they will end up okay even though they don't believe in Jesus and have clearly rejected him. And so the lie is not just out there, but it creeps into the church. And the truth is, if we are going to pray with urgency, if we are going to preach with urgency... We need to accept the word of God as it stands, that those apart from Christ are lost. Friends, there's another lie that is persistent, that hurts and endangers our children and our grandchildren. And right now, all across Western civilization, people are teaching things. There's no such thing as male and female. Sexual orientation is fluid. It changes one day, and that's okay. Whatever you desire to do or be is your personal decision, and that's the only thing that matters. In fact, the only thing that matters is love and mutual consent. And you can see yard signs in Holly that say things like, I believe that love is love. And friends, some of us will say, no, I, I don't agree with that. And yet we will accept portions of that kind of teaching when it influences what we believe about men and women serving in the church. Because we'll say, well, we believe that in Christ, there is no male and female. When in reality, Christ's teaching says, we are equally in the image of God, and yet we are made differently. And so while we are absolutely equal, we serve in different ways. Friends, I understand not everyone agrees with that. But I believe that it is critical that I urge you to examine your convictions biblically, to not dismiss the words of the Apostle Paul because it's Paul, but to recognize that Jesus commissioned and called Paul, and that the things that he wrote to Timothy did not have an expiration date on them. I am not just giving our church information, I am pleading with you to recognize that this is the word of God to us. 
and that I believe it is arrogant and conceited to dismiss it or to negate it with popular opinions. Some have said, you know, this kind of teaching could hurt our testimony. And maybe it will. Look at the motivation for people who embrace false teaching. Paul says, these people are not only puffed up with conceit and understand nothing, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are deprived in mind, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there's a lot in there. You say, Pastor, you just spent like 10 minutes talking about a particular word at the beginning of this message. Are you one of those guys that has a passion for quarreling about words? Well, I don't believe that this is condemning careful research of how the Bible uses a word. This is condemning basing your teaching off of misunderstanding the words of Scripture. When you examine how a word is used throughout Scripture with a desire to understand the word of God, I think Paul would say, that's awesome, good job. When you approach the scripture with an idea of what it already means and you use words like ammunition to juice up your argument, you've already lost the war for your soul because you are not humbly approaching the word of God to understand what it says to you. You are instead approaching the word of God to try to impose your convictions on it. And Paul says the motivation for that is that they believe that this form of godliness is a means of gain. Well, what's he talking about? Well, sometimes popular teachers and preachers can become enormously wealthy. It happened back then. It happens today. You can see all the people with big, goofy hair, and you can see the people that love to be positive and never negative. They get invited on Oprah Winfrey, and they get famous, and they get book deals, and they go on TV, and they can become enormously wealthy. The easy way to preach this message right now would be to say, man, this is talking about those people over there. But I think there is a more difficult and painful application because the way that this hits home here in my heart is I face a temptation to censor myself so that I don't make people mad here. Because there's a whole lot of stuff that I can talk about that everyone will agree on. And I'll look at happy faces and they'll say, good sermon, pastor, that was great. And I could do that week after week after week after week. The problem is the Bible constantly gets in the way of it. So if I am going to faithfully preach verse by verse, line by line, I will make you mad at some point. Probably everyone in here. Because the Bible confronts our sin and all of us are sinners. So often what happens is pastors are constantly tempted, myself included, to say, man, do I really want to say that? I got a list of people that are going to be so angry that I said that. And yet... If the word of God says it, I am compelled to pull that fire alarm, to not just give you information so that you can decide yourself, but so I can urge you to move your life to a place of obedience and conformity, not to my opinion, but to the word of God. 
And even if the culture doesn't like it, that's the wrong way to measure how we should preach and what we should believe. Paul goes on to say, godliness with contentment is great gain. I'm going to get there in just a second. But the motivation for gain comes when I measure what's popular. What do people need to hear right now? I'm going to say that. And yeah, TV evangelists do it all the time. But the reality is, so does your local pastor. I'm constantly faced with that temptation. I like to make people happy. I do. Everyone does. But if the word of God confronts cultural lies, it is critical that we boldly preach all of the word of God. Why? Not because we love controversy. Not because we love arguing. But because the word of God brings healing and health, even if it's unpopular. So the character of bad teachers is a character that is ultimately prideful and greedy. They look for ways of building ministry with popularity. And in doing that, and look, I want a large growing ministry. not saying that's bad. I think there's something wrong with your heart if you believe that we're just going to be the only few that embrace the word of God because you've lost heart of Jesus as he's trying to save and rescue people. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He came to seek and save that which is lost, not to silo himself and allow everyone else to just leave. So I want to have a growing and a thriving ministry. But if to achieve that goal, we abandon the teaching that we receive from the word of God, something has gone wrong. And if you have to choose between the two, we must urgently choose fidelity to all of the word of God, not just our favorite parts. So the character of bad teachers is prideful and greedy, hoping to build their their ministries through cheap popularity. But Paul says, there is great gain in godliness. So I want to point you to verse 6 and 8 and talk for a minute about about the contentment of godliness. The contentment of godliness. Verse 6, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain for We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. Man, don't you wish that he said, if we have food and clothing and a whole lot of other things, like I can fill in a list of things that I would like to have. His list of what he needs to be content is super short. And he would point to Jesus who teaches things like you are to pray for your daily bread, not for your yearly allowance. It's a moment by moment trust where you believe that the Lord is giving you what you need. And the apostle Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now here's what I think he means by that. It might not be popular. It might not make you rich. But the strange and the weird thing about following Christ is it makes you happy even when you're not rich, even when you feel alone. And here's what I mean by that. I want to give you an illustration 
a local pastor here. I'm, I'm not going to give you his name for, for obvious reasons. He is a dear and a sweet brother. I, I began to really respect and love this guy because in our group of pastors, probably two, three years ago, he said, guys, I, I watched my dad die from dementia and I am afraid that I'm starting to show signs of dementia myself. And he's describing failures that he's experienced. And he's like, you know, everybody forgets names every now and then, and that, and that happens, I, I know, but, but, but it's happening to me more. And I'm just, I'm afraid that I'm about to go through what my dad went through, and I watched it. And not only that, he described how he'd forgotten a couple critical things in his role as a pastor, and now he's dealing with, with some people who are angry with him. And he's like, guys, I'm afraid physically. I'm just, I'm just losing it. And in that request, I began to see this man's heart, his love for his people, and his humble trust as he began to believe that he has a diagnosis that is, that is going to make the future of his life very, very difficult. So he's a faithful minister. He loves God. He was vulnerable with sharing this request with us. And probably two, three months ago, he said, guys, my kids have walked away from Christ. He's a pastor in his 60s, raised his kids in church, loved them, taught them the word. And, and all of them have turned and said, you know what, Dad? We just, we don't believe the way you believe anymore. And he is a godly guy that I've seen again and again humbly loves the word. One of the things he's doing that, that I think is just awesome, he, he's going through the Bible every year and making little notes for his grandkids. So like one a year, he's got like 15 grandkids. He's like, I, I need another 13 years of my life so I can do this for each of them. He's just putting the date that he read it, little notes for each of them, and then he's giving them one by one to his grandkids. He's someone who loves Jesus. And at the end of his life, you know, he maybe has another 10, 20 years, who knows, nobody knows for sure. His kids have come to him and said, Dad, we don't believe the way you believe anymore. And like, shoot. And then the next thing that he said was this. You know what? We love Jesus. We love Jesus even more than we love our kids. And he is precious to us and he is with us now. Now, some of you are like, that guy is sick. But some of you are hearing that and saying, you mean Jesus can be that precious to me? You mean Jesus can, can fill me with that kind of hope when the, the people that I've poured my life into and I love, they walk away from me and leave me? Jesus can be that precious? And the answer is yes. Paul says his contentment is not based on people staying with him. In fact, he says at several points in his ministry, everyone abandoned me. He confronts loneliness and abandonment again and again in his ministry. He confronts poverty and sickness again and again in his ministry. And in all of those things, he said, Jesus is more precious. Why? Because godliness with contentment is great gain. And contentment doesn't depend on who you're with or what you have. It depends on your trust and the promises of God. And Paul understood that the promises of God were solid when nothing else in the world is. The contentment of godliness gives hope when the teaching of Jesus is not popular because it promises a sure and a better future. Paul points to this fact, you know, the simple saying, you can't take it with you. He says, look, 
even if you succeed in life according to the world and you amass all kinds of toys, what are you going to be doing when your time comes to see Jesus face to face? Even if you have the relationship that you hope for, what are you going to do when your spouse dies? What are you going to do when your time comes to die? If your faith is resting in Jesus, you have a foundation that is more solid and more secure. But if you have built your life on the things of this world, you will find a time when you are utterly alone and without hope. And that is the calamity of godlessness. The calamity of godlessness. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Paul says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This desire to meet your own needs, to provide for yourself, it's rooted in the fact that God longs for us to enjoy good things, I believe. God has made us so that we depend on him for our food and our clothing. And and Paul is going to say a little bit later in this letter that God has given us all things to enjoy. Paul would be the first to say, don't treat food and clothing like they're evil. They're not. They're gifts of God. But if you live your life to get those things and to provide for yourself, the Bible calls you a fool because there's more to life than food and clothing. Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It will make your ministry go astray if you start worrying about how big was the offering. Are people going to stop giving if I say this out loud? If that is my concern as a preacher, I can't be a preacher because I'm not going to be faithful to the word of God. But if my main concern is what does this say? How does God want to bless us even if it's hard, even if it's unpopular? My main concern is what is Jesus saying to the church through his word? And friends, I would ask that you would pray that I would always be faithful to say what Jesus would have us to know based on his word. The truth is, as people have been tempted to either embrace lies of the culture, and some churches have embraced them and celebrated them, or to simply be silent and to not talk about things that are unpopular, to sort of go along, to get along, and to preach on the things that we can all agree on, that is a short-sighted way that allows room for people to, as this verse says, pierce themselves with many pangs. The end result of Christian compromise is pain. Even though it seems that for a little while, it's easier to avoid conflict and confrontation. The reason why I will say things that might make you mad Not because I want to do that, not because I'm controversial or I love confrontation. It's because I want to spare all of us pain. My desire as a pastor is when I see Christ and he says, how did you shepherd the sheep of the flock of First Baptist of Holly? My desire 
is that I would be able to say with a clean conscience, I regularly fed them all of your word. Not that I gave them what they wanted so that they stayed happy. Friends, I believe that is a huge difference in how ministries are conducted. And I am blessed. We have a number of good and faithful ministries around here. I don't want to hold myself and be like, this is awesome. This is who we are. And who cares about other churches? There are many pastors that have this heart. And so one of the things that I want to say as I apply this message, pray for me that I would remain faithful. Pray for our church that we would have the humility to embrace the word as it stands. Humbly, simply, longing to know what Jesus would have us do. And pray for churches all around the world. This struggle is real. I have a friend, he's a a missionary. He and his wife are missionaries in the country of Libya. And just this past week, I was on my way to the gym. There's like an eight-hour time difference. So there's a weird thing where you're like, oh, man, am I calling him in the middle of the night or am I calling him in the, like, what, what time is it there? So I called him about 6.30 in the morning, which ends up being about 2.30 his time. So it, it worked well, and I was glad because they have their church service on Friday, which seems maybe a little bit odd to us. Uh, but in the context of a Muslim culture, that's very common for churches to just have an easier way to hold their services on a Friday. So I called them and I said, hey man, you sent me an email a couple of weeks ago saying you guys are having some problems and, and there's maybe a little bit of chance that they're gonna ask you to leave the country because of how you're doing your ministry. Like, how are things going? He's like, oh, well, I can't talk right now, but I will tell you uh, the city just took our parking lot so that they could install a public parking park right next to our building. Now, this is a church that has existed in Libya for hundreds of years. It's not a new church plant. They called him in to serve as pastor partly because it's a little bit easier for international Christians to preach openly. There's a little bit less danger for persecution. And one of the ways that they will harass churches is they will allow them to exist, but they'll just show up and with 24 hours notice say, hey, we're taking your parking lot. We really want a public park for our city right here, and we're going to put it there. Sorry, I guess you guys don't have any place to park anymore. His desire as a pastor there in Libya is not to avoid confrontation. His desire is to preach the good news of Jesus and to see people come to Christ. So as we pray, Lord, keep us faithful. Pray for men and women who are boldly presenting the word of God in places where they lose their stuff. They go to jail. Sometimes they're killed. Pray that we would be faithful to the word of God as we minister all around the world, remembering our missionary friends as well as our church. And I'd like to close by praying right now for him, for us, and for our world. Would you join me? Father, Lord, I thank you that through the Holy Spirit, you continue to call people to your service. And not only do you issue the call, but you equip and give gifts and power so that we are able to remain faithful in service. And I pray that you would pour out your Spirit on us, that your Spirit would take the word that you have given us and lead us to obediently follow it. Father, I pray for John and his wife, that you would bless them richly, that their obedience would see eternal rewards, and that you would provide for their church in every way. Father, I pray 
for ministers of the word who are right now closing their services and praying all around this time zone. I pray that you would keep us faithful to all of your word, that we would not only give information, but that we would plead for obedience. And Father, that you would grant us joyful, united obedience. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.